All right, we are in Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 11. So if you want to find your place there and hold it. And uh, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, it's page 911. Um, I'm just going to do a real quick recap of what we talked about last week, because last week our text ended in verse 10, but that's just part of a larger text, and so our text today picks up right there, but uh, let me recap real quickly. Uh, Peter and John are going to the temple at 3 o'clock in the afternoon at the time of prayer. There's there's an an evening sacrifice there that was considered evening in their culture. There's an evening sacrifice take, that takes place at 3 o'clock. There was also a time of prayer at the temple. So Peter and John are on their way, and there's a man who sits at the gate every day who is lame and has been lame for his entire life. And he sits there every day, and he asks for money from people who are going in so that he has some kind of an income. And when Peter and John get there and he asks them for money, Peter says, I don't have gold, I don't have silver, but I do have something, and I'll give it to you. And then he just proclaims, by the authority of the name of Jesus, he proclaims healing for this man. He says, rise up and walk, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And he helps him up, and the man instantly is healed, and begins to, he walks into the temple with them, and he can't contain his excitement, so he starts jumping around, and he's shouting praises to God, and, and obviously this would draw attention, and so a lot of people saw this, and recognized him as the man who had been lame from birth that sits at the temple gate. And the people are in awe. And that leads right into our text for today. Um, Now, before I read it, do any of you know the children's song that goes with that text? Not very many people. I see a few hands. There is a children's song. Um, Someone asked me last week after the service why I didn't sing it. Um, And the more I think about that, the more I think I don't know. My knees and my ankles are 41 years old. This man was able to jump around, which the song has motions and you jump around. And he was able to do it because he's got brand new legs. But um, I'm not sure that my knees would be up for that. And I don't know that that would be a pretty sight for any of us. So I chose to not, and I'm grateful looking in hindsight that I didn't. But so this man is proclaiming with his actions the God, what has just taken place. And, and Peter, the crowd, begins to run after them. And so he, we're going to pick up in verse 11, and we're going to see how Peter and John respond to the crowd. And so if, you would, uh, if you're able to, would you stand as we honor God and read his word? Starting in verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, so he went into the temple and he stayed right with them. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us as though by our own power and piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, 
whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but, when God, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Let's pray. God, we, um, we look at this text, we look at the sermon that Peter preached to the crowd, and um, again, Peter lays out a very clear gospel message for them. And what we don't see in our text today is that you stir in the hearts of the people who are listening and, and you bring more people into the body of Christ by saving them and granting them salvation and forgiveness for uh, their sins. And we are all recipients of that blessing because it has been passed down through the generations to us. And we're grateful for that, God. Now, this morning, teach us, give us wisdom to understand um, how this text makes a difference in our life today. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. All right, so first thing we're going to talk about today is that in your notes, you've got, you've got blanks. The crowd misunderstood who healed the crippled man. The crowd misunderstood who healed the crippled man. That comes from verses 11 and 12. Let me read through that real quickly again. He was clinging to Peter and John, this crippled man who had been healed. All the people were utterly astounded. They ran together to go f see this, and, and they were gazing at Peter and John. And Peter saw them, and he said to them, Why do you wonder at this, and why, or why do you stare at us as if we have somehow healed this man? And so... Peter and John, they, they deflect the glory. The people, Luke doesn't tell us in the text, but we, he, we see from Peter's response that the people are looking at them like they're some kind of, um, some kind of deity or, some, they, or they have some kind of special power. And Peter and John, they deflect that glory away from themselves and they direct it 
to Jesus. And I think that's an important thing that we see in our text today because this is not the same picture of Peter and John that we see in the Gospels. Um, Peter and John in the Gospels, they're part of the Twelve, and there are a number of places where we get to see a good picture of their character at the time, and their characters were very much wrapped up in themselves. Um, First of all, all the Twelve would frequently argue with each other about who was going to be the greatest in God's kingdom. Jesus had to rebuke them for that and, and put, them, put a right perspective in their mind. It took a while because they did it more than once. And it's really not until after uh, the resurrection that we begin to see some of that take root in their heart. So they, they were both a part of a group that frequently argued about who was, who was awesome out of the 12, who's going to be the best out of the 12. But we see specifically with these two, Peter is an aggressive um, person who is just out to accomplish what he wants. And so we see him do things like rebuke Jesus when Jesus is speaking about his coming death. I mean, who has the audacity to do that, right? We see Peter, when, they, when the soldiers are trying to arrest Jesus, Peter steps in to defend him by pulling out a sword and cutting off the ear of the, the servant of the high priest. And so Peter was an aggressive person who was not afraid to, to stand out and was not afraid to take action, but it was usually his own will that he was pushing. John, he and his brother James had the audacity to ask Jesus if when he sits in, on his throne in glory, if they can sit on each side of him, which made the rest of the disciples indignant with them. They were, they were angry with them. And so we see two people here who at one time in their life thought that they were hot stuff, right? They thought that they were pretty special and that they deserved special treatment or, they, deserve, or they, they thought that their idea of what needed to take place in uh, Jesus' ministry in terms of Peter, like trying to push his agenda, they thought that the world centered around them. But now we see a different picture because now there are people who are looking at them with this look of almost worship in their eyes. And, I mean, if we're honest with each other, everybody likes it when people look at them like they're special, right? Everybody likes it when they're treated like, man, you are, you are the most godly example of anybody I've ever met. Who doesn't want to hear that, right? But the problem is, we we don't take that we don't take that and usually return that glory to God. We we like to soak that in and and puff ourselves up with that. But Peter and John, at this point, they've gone through enough and they've seen what's taken place with the death and resurrection. They're filled with the Holy Spirit now after Pentecost, and now when these this crowd looks at them like that, they say, um, "Don't look at us as if we're great or we were able to do this." This was only by the power and the authority of the name of Jesus Christ. So we see a humble spirit that has taken place in them. And we've talked about the importance of having humility in here. Um, We've talked in the sermon series through Acts. We've talked in Sunday school. I've had conversations with people. God's word is laden with places where God tells us that he opposes those He stands in opposition to those who are proud, but he gives grace to those and favor to those who are humble. 
So in your notes, I've got three verses up here. Psalm 138, Proverbs 3, and Proverbs 29. All three of those are places in the Old Testament scriptures that these people would have understood. This crowd, Peter and John, all the disciples, they would have understood this. This is These are places where God is speaking about his opposition to those who are proud, but favoring the humble. Then we have we have examples, and my, one of my favorite examples is John the Baptist, which is John 3.30. In John the Baptist, or in John's life, he was the center of what God was doing after a 400-year period of silence, and so he was kind of the central figure. But then Jesus comes, and after his baptism, Jesus begins to baptize people within sight. And John's disciples come running to him, and they say, teacher, the one that you, that you baptize, he's now baptizing people. And they're like, you know, they're kind of jealous for their, for their mentor or their um, teacher. And John replies by saying, he must become greater, and I must become less. Some translations say he must increase and I must decrease. And so John the Baptist had a spirit of humility that understood that here is one that is greater than me and all of the glory needs to be given to him. And then we have places where we're taught. Ephesians 4.29, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and he says to them in 4.29, you are to make much of Christ. You're to glorify Christ by building each other up in the body of Christ, which means putting others ab- above yourself, um, putting their needs and their desires above your needs and desires. And so um, my kids play sports at the Christian Center, and the Christian Center does a thing every once in a while called Others First, where coaches will recognize people on the teams who demonstrate a Christ-like attitude by putting other people above themselves. Um, and I was thinking about that when I was preparing the sermon, and I thought, you know, it's not a bad, like, we should do that in the church, right? We should recognize people for being people of humility who serve others and put others' needs above themselves. Um, I've never been a part of a church that, that does that, but I think I was just, this is just me brainstorming in front of you right now. Um, maybe we should do that. Maybe we should go out of our way to encourage people with that. So with all of this, God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. We have examples of it. We have places where it's taught. If we humble ourselves and we exalt Christ and we serve others and consider them better than ourselves, then we don't need to lift ourselves up. We don't need to make much of ourselves. We don't need to puff ourselves up or talk to people about how great we are. We don't have to hope that people will recognize that stuff because if we have our priorities straight, God will do that in his timing. God will be the one who in his perfect timing and in the perfect context builds us up so that people, so that people can see what he wants them to see in us. So they can see a walk with Christ that is, that is growing and he is nurturing. We need to be people who, of humility who exalt Christ and build other people up. And we see that in Peter and John here. We see that the people misunderstood what had happened with the, in this uh, miracle. They misunderstood who was the, who was the person who actually healed because they thought it was Peter and John. But Peter's humility directs all of that glory to Christ, and that's something that every one of us can learn from.
So we see that the crowd misunderstood who healed the crippled man. As we move to the second point, we see that the crowd misunderstands also who fulfilled the scriptures because they totally missed the mark with Jesus. Peter sees that there's a necessity here because this is a crowd that would be, they would know what, what had happened recently with the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection. It wasn't, they weren't that far removed. They would have known what was going on in the recent history, but Peter sees them obviously missing something, and so he sees there's a necessity here for me to kind of recap um, some, some of these events and show them how this is actually prophesied in scripture. And so verses 13 to 16, he says this, and, and I, he says a couple things in this part right here that I think he used to get their attention. The first one is he says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. And I think he would have grabbed their attention with that, and we'll talk about that in just a second. So he says he glorified his servant Jesus, but then he goes into whom you the crowd, delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, even though Pilate wanted to let him go. And you denied the holy and righteous one. You asked for a murderer, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. And then Peter announces, we have witnessed this, because that was what their calling was, right? They were supposed to be witnessing to the resurrection. Now, when Peter says to them, the God, he refers to God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's taking the, the audience back to the burning bush encounter that Moses had because it's at that point that God introduces himself to Moses as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This would have grabbed their attention because their whole life and culture and their identity as a nation was grounded in the events of the Exodus. Now, that, that event at the burning bush was God's continual work from his covenant that he made with Abraham, but it is at the burning bush when he enters into the covenant with Moses and the nation of Israel, and he is coming down to be involved in their life in a much more intimate way than he had been. He introduces himself by name, and so he's getting more and more personal with his people. And that is, that and then the, the event of the Exodus when they are delivered out of Egyptian bondage, that is where their identity is wrapped up as a nation, as an individual and as a nation. And so when Peter refers to God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is re referring, he's tugging on their understanding of their identity as a nation found in this God and the covenant that they entered into with him. So his purpose is to remind them of that. When he uses the word servant, the God of our fathers glorified his servant. Peter is pulling from pro prophetic texts like Isaiah 52 and 53, where there's a very detailed description of the suffering of God's chosen servant. He's using language from Isaiah 42.1, where God speaks about delighting in his servant. And some of that language in 42.1 we see at Jesus' baptism. So Peter is ground, he's grounding, the, or he's reminding them that they're 
their whole identity is grounded in the covenant that God made with Moses and the events of the Exodus when God delivered his people. And he's referring to the prophets because ever since that point, there had been, there had been discussion about this one servant that was going to come. God had lots of servants that he used, but there's, there's an understanding in the Old Testament that there is a servant to come who is God's chosen and anointed servant. And those were always understood to be referring to the Messiah. And so Peter says, this God raised up his servant that he'd been warning you about or preparing you for, but you handed him over to be crucified. So the people, Peter's, I told you, Peter is very blunt with them. He's not holding back. He needs them to understand their sin so that they understand their need for a Savior. And so Peter tells them, your sin, this one event, is fourfold. First, you rejected Jesus by handing him over. Second, when Pilate was going to release him because he realized he had no grounds for any kind of conviction, especially for putting him to death, when he was going to release him, you pressed him to crucify Jesus, and so you disowned him before Pilate. Third, you not only disowned him before Pilate, but you then asked for a murderer to be released in place of him. So an innocent man, you pressed that an innocent man would be, would be um, convicted and crucified, and you asked for someone who actually was known to be a murderer to be released instead. And fourth, Peter gives the stinging, like, this is rough. You killed the author of life. Both, both times that Peter has preached, at Pentecost and in our text today, Peter has laid out very clearly here is your sin here's your problem you need a solution because you can't fix it and God sent his son Jesus to do that and in both of those sermons Peter is there's a couple of different things he contrasts that I think are important to note here Peter in both sermons contrasts the way Jesus was treated by people by men with the way he was treated by his father in heaven. Men took his life from him, and God raised him back to life and, and gave it back to him. And then he also contrasts in both sermons that, um, that the attitude um, of Jesus and the response that God gives him. And so Jesus comes and he, and he humbly submits to the father's authority willingly lays down his life on behalf of you and me and because of his humility god exalts him so if we want to live a life that reflects the life of christ then we have to um, believe his words that he speaks in luke 14 11 when he says for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. 
And that is repeated by Peter in 1 Peter 5, 6, when he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And it's repeated by James in James 4.10 when he says, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And so, Scripture from, front to be, from the beginning to the end is all about how God is jealous for his glory. And it's not because, it's not a sinful jealous, it's jealousy. It's not a, um, a pride issue on God's part. It's, it's truth. It's, it's fact that he and he alone is to be glorified and we are sinful people who fall short of his glory and rob him of his glory when we sin against him and violate the covenant that he entered into us into with us and so we need to be people who humble ourselves at his feet so that he will be glorified so first the crowd misunderstood who performed the miracle and then they obviously misunderstood that Jesus was the one who fulfilled scripture um, about the coming of the Messiah because they had him put to death. Peter now transitions into the solution, and the solution is that God, in his mercy, provided a solution for them through Jesus. And Peter's going to lay this out right here. Verse 17 Peter acknowledges that the people, even the Jewish leaders and the, and the chief priests, acted in ignorance when they had Jesus put to death. Um, but lest it sound like Peter's being lenient with them, Peter is quick to tell them in verse 19, you are still guilty, but here is God's plan to fix this problem for you. There is a plan. He lays out a plan of divine amnesty God's pardon for those who are guilty in the in the death of Jesus. There is forgiveness of sins if they would confess their sins and turn to God in repentance. And so Peter tells them in verse 19, he says, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Now he goes on to say, to also list some other things that are that are blessings of that times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord that was something the Messiah was to bring um, that uh, he may send the Christ who's appointed for you who's currently in heaven waiting for all things to be restored but I want to focus on this part where he talks to them about their sins being blotted out because whether they he, he, he says, you didn't know what you were doing, but whether you sin intentionally or sin unintentionally, there is always still punishment that must be had. In the Old Testament law, God said, you do, you know, if you sin and you know you're sinning, here is your punishment. If you sin and you don't realize it's a sin, you, so, you know, a lot of times the punishment wasn't as severe, but there was still punishment because sin is sin no matter what. Sin violates God's covenant with them no matter what and so there has to be there has to be um, some kind of sacrifice that takes place to forgive those sins and so Peter says repent and turn back to the Lord and he will blot out your sins um, I read a commentator named William Barclay um, now, if you have any of his books or if you run across any of his stuff as you're studying, let me forewarn you. 
don't put a lot of stock in what he has to say in terms of his interpretation of miracles because he tries to explain miracles away by natural events and stuff like that. Um, so I don't read him for his interpretation. I read him because he is a fantastic historian and he has like his, histor his historical details that he f uses in his commentaries. Um, they're just top notch and they fill in a lot of the gaps that God divinely left open in his word so that we can understand some of the culture and some of the practices and that kind of stuff. And so there are things that as I read his, his commentaries, um, I'm reading it and it's like, oh, that makes sense now. That thing I never understood, that makes sense now. And so I was reading something from him and he was talking about ancient writing and they used papyrus at the time. And he talked about how the ink that they would use in, the, in writing, it didn't have acid in it. And so in his, in his words, because it didn't have acid, it didn't bite into the papyrus. Like the ink we use today soaks into the paper. It didn't do that on the papyrus. And so you could make a stroke and it didn't bite into it or, or soak into it. It just sat on the surface. And so if you, had a, if you had a document, if you were writing, um, you could, like, if you wanted to erase that, you could just take a wet sponge and wipe it off because it just sat on the surface of the, of the papyrus. And I think when Peter says that God is going to blot out your sins, I think that is a perfect image of what takes place. Our lives are full of crud like we have sin we have sins that we commit like outwardly we have sins that we commit inward inwardly with our thoughts we have idols in our heart that we set up as as our object of worship and a lot of times that idol in our heart is has something to do with us so when God looks at the slate of our life, it is filthy and it is cluttered and it is messy. And Peter's telling the people here, you messed up big time. You missed the boat. When Christ came, God had been telling you. He, he couldn't have been more clear, but when Christ arrived, you missed it and you put him to death. But if you turn back to him, confess your sins and turn back to him in repentance, God will take the blood of Christ and he will wipe clean the slate of your life just like you would erase the papyrus. And he says, he says to them, Moses foretold about this guy. He said there's going to be a person who, a prophet God raises up from your brothers. Every prophet after Moses from Samuel on had spoke something in their prophecy about the messianic age to come. God had been preparing a way to fix this problem of your sin. And he sent his son to you first. And just as Moses, you know, their identity was wrapped up in the Exodus. And just as Moses was God's chosen servant who delivered them physically from, from spiritual or physically from Egyptian bondage, 
Egyptian slavery. So Jesus, as the second Moses, has come and he is going to deliver you from spiritual bondage by wiping out your sins, blotting out your sins, and cleaning your slate. So Jesus fulfilled that which Moses did, except on a much bigger and more significant scale. And so Peter is laying out here, that's the solution. Repent and turn back to Jesus. Now, as we wrap up here, there are two things in this text that I think stand out that we need to take note of, and I think they are warnings to us. One is there's a clear warning against pride. There's a clear warning against spiritual arrogance, and it's real easy to fall into spiritual arrogance. The more you learn and the more you grow, and the more people begin to look to you as someone who can teach them or someone who can counsel them or someone who has the answer, the more that happens, the more Satan is going to put a target on you to try to bring you down. So spiritual arrogance is something that we, every one of us battles. And, you, and the battle, you better be fighting every moment of every day because Satan does not give up. He does not back down. He does not let up unless he, unless strategically he realizes if I let up a little bit here, I will get him here. So he, but he is constantly on the attack. Peter says that he is prowling around like a lion waiting for someone to devour. And so we have to, there's a warning here that we have to battle pride every moment of every day. And we see examples here of humility that we can look at, we can look at, and we can imitate. Peter and John were, were humble as they were exalting Christ, and obviously Jesus is an example that demonstrated humility. But here's what it takes. It takes daily prayer. It takes daily scripture reading and intaking that and mulling over that in your mind and meditating on it and keeping it before you on a regular basis. It takes regularly engaging with the body of Christ. The other thing that I think is a warning to us in this that, um, that I think is pretty, pretty obvious is that there is a warning about going through the motions. The people in the crowd, they were in the temple because they had gone to the temple because they were devout believers. They were going to the temple because it was the time of sacrifice and it was the time of prayer and they were going to worship and encounter God. So these are people who had devoted themselves to following the law of God, which means they probably would have been the people in the synagogues on the Sabbath day who were reading the, the Old Testament scriptures, reading the law, reading the prophets, reading the Psalms. They would have been people who were teaching their kids in their own home. Um, they would have probably followed the instruction to post God's word and his promises somewhere on your walls or on your door po doorposts. And so these were devout people who would have understood by a life of dedicating their, um, to God's word, they would have understood what God's word was saying, and yet they still missed Jesus. And so the warning for us is we can be, we can be people in the church. We can go to church every week. We can take part in Bible studies. We can be a part of small groups. We can take part in prayer groups. We can study every day on our own. We can lead our families. Um, we can take this in on a regular basis, and yet we can end up going through the motions. 
when I did my internship, my mentor had been in ministry for 13 years, and I arrived in the summer, and he'd come off of a spring where he realized that somewhere in that 13 years, he began going through the motions, and God in the spring was bringing a revival to his heart and renewing a passion for his son and for his word. And so it's really easy to just start going through the motions and, and not, not like truly engaging with God. And when we do that, then we're going to miss something important. So daily prayer, daily scripture reading, daily en- or regularly engaging with the body of Christ. And you know what I would also add? Um, we need accountability partners or accountability groups. And so I just want to encourage you, if you don't have something like that, then please find somebody that you know, that you trust. Somebody who has a good walk with Christ, who would be able to hold you accountable, be able to encourage you, lift you up in prayer and support you. Uh, because... This is a hard life we live in a world that's hostile to us. Um, and here's a warning that if we're, not, if we're not intimately involved with God, that we can miss the most obvious of things that he's trying to communicate to us. Um, let's pray, and then we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. God in heaven, we, um, we recognize that any one of us Um, daily struggles with spiritual arrogance and pride and you hate pride there's that is the root of all sin and you you stand in complete opposition to the proud help us to be humble so that we make much of Christ and we keep him the center of everything in life And help us, God, to uh, engage you intimately so that we are, um, so that we hear your voice, we know what you're speaking to us, and we don't miss something that you're trying to communicate to us like the crowd missed Jesus. And God, may you be glorified in all that we say, think, and do. and be a witness to the surrounding community, much as this lame man bore witness of the good you did in his life. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.